Good morning, church. Hope you all are well and have had a, a blessed week. You can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. In, uh, in preparing for this sermon, uh, I was really just thinking about how a person's last words matter. You know, we, there's a saying, famous last words, right? It's often used when usually someone important or impressive, you know, says one last profound statement uh, in just a few words to encapsulate everything it is that they want to say just before their death. And these famous last words, for, it's often this last chance for people to, to just say whatever it is they, they, they want to say. So I started to just look at what are some of the famous last words throughout history. I thought I'd share a couple of them with you. Um, some of them are, are pretty profound. Uh, the famed reggae singer Bob Marley, his last words were, money can't buy life. Leonardo da Vinci, um, the Renaissance painter, he famously said, I've offended God and man because my work did not reach the quality it should have. So I guess the Mona Lisa wasn't, wasn't quite up to par. Um, all right. Beethoven, uh, he, he tragically said, applaud friends, the comedy is over. Kind of just encapsulating what was really a, a tormented life, a very depressed life. Um, Sometimes these last words can be very uh, emotional, you know. Oscar Wilde, the, the famous writer, he, he said, either that wallpaper goes or I do. And uh, I, guess, I guess he was the one that went. Um, and uh, so I guess not all famous last words are that important. Um, but genu- generally, f- final words, they're meant to be impactful. They're supposed to mean something, and they're supposed to cement sort of the legacy of, of that, that individual. Um, in the USA, you know, this is really common for outgoing presidents. Uh, the commanders in, in chief, they will give a farewell address before they leave office. And they just sort of, now there's, there's nothing to lose. There's no more elections to win. So now I'm going to be honest and tell you, you know, what I feel I need to tell you. Um, and so they share the last thing that, that they want to say before they leave office. Uh, and those are always, you know, looked forward to with just, you know, and so for some presidents more than others. Um, but these speeches are usually given as a warning to the nation regarding various threats that they see on the horizon. Um, a couple famous ones. Uh, the first president, George Washington, he gave perhaps the most famous farewell address, urging America to avoid splitting into political parties, which uh, America promptly ignored. Right. America today, it's, it's deeply divided and polarized amongst partisan lines. Dwight Eisenhower is the famous World War II general and the 34th president. He delivered a farewell address warning against the dangers of the military-industrial complex, which is the system of businesses that are creating you know, all the weapons used for wars and how wars can sometimes be used to keep those people in business and being more of a financial system than anything else. And he warned of its ability to influence public policy and that we may see a lot more war because of, of this complex. Uh, that also went unheeded. But these were important messages. These were important words that, uh, that these impactful individuals uh, gave to us. And it just got me thinking because Jesus, too, gave last words to his disciples. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe Jesus is speaking today. He speaks through his word. He speaks through his Holy Spirit. He still speaks because he's alive. He's not dead. Each of these men have, have died. Each of these people have, have died. And, and these were very much the last things that they said. Jesus is alive. He's still speaking. But these were the last words that he gave to his people before he ascended into heaven. And like other last words, they're very important. They hold a core message from Jesus about his vision for the world and our place in it. It holds a a scarlet thread 
throughout the, the whole scripture that all culminates in these words that Jesus gives to us. So, if we want to know God's will for our lives, we just need to look at His last words. So let's heed the word of the Lord together this morning. Matthew chapter 28, and we'll read verses 18 through 20. And it says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have a purpose for our lives. Would we see that purpose in scripture? And would you, through your word, change us to be obedient to you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this text is what's commonly referred to as the Great Commission. Jesus here is commissioning his disciples to spread the gospel, which is the message that Christ lived, he suffered, he died, was buried, and rose again. And through his work and his sacrificial atonement, we can be saved if we would repent of our sins and make Jesus the Lord of our lives. This message was meant to be spread to the ends of the earth. So this morning, we're going to look at the Great Commission and see what does it mean for our lives. And if you're taking notes this morning, it's very simple. That line is it, it, it's just, it's very simple. In the Great Commission, there's one command, there is two promises, and three steps. So the Great Commission has one command, two promises, and three steps. But before we get into that, we need to look at the verses just before this and set the stage for what happened to prepare the disciples to receive this commission from Jesus. So verses 16 and 17 say this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I think there's a few things that we just, we just need to pay attention to as we look at the Great Commission um, in these verses. First, they were where Jesus told them to go. Jesus told them to go to Galilee, both before the Great Commission uh, and before, excuse me, before his death and after his death. He commanded the, the disciples, go meet me in Galilee. That's where I'm going to be. Um, and you need to go there. So they were where Jesus told them to be. And two, they worshipped him as soon as they saw him. They received the Great Commission out of a place of worship. And I think this is so important because when we're where we ought to be, and when we have a posture of worship towards God, we can see the calling that He has for us. We can receive it. Friends, it's a heart of obedience and worship towards God that most readily receives His instruction. But this is also important in verse 17. It says, They worshiped Him, but some doubted. Some doubted. So it, it wasn't just these guys who are super strong in the faith. It wasn't these guys who, who had it all together that received the Great Commission. But it was doubters. It was the weak. Those who doubted received Christ's instruction. Most famously, we think of the disciple Thomas, right? Often called Doubting Thomas. He gets a really bad rap, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, he, like, he, I always hear him used as the example of like, you don't want to be like Thomas, right? He doubted. You, you want to have more faith than that, you know? But doubting Thomas received the Great Commission. And doubting Thomas would end up being the first to bring the gospel to India. And doubting Thomas would go as far as to be martyred for his faith. It's the doubter. If you have doubts this morning, if you're feeling weak this morning, God wants to use you. God has a message for you. He has will for your life. 
this morning. And I'm telling you that because this morning I'm coming to you from a place of profound weakness. But it's through our weakness that God is made strong. And that He will accomplish His will in our lives. And he'll, He will bring His kingdom to earth if we, just in our weakness, would say, Lord, You do it. We will receive from You. So, the instruction for the Lord, it's for all of us this morning. If you're feeling strong, if you're feeling weak, if you have faith that can move mountains, or if you are doubting, God wants to use you. It's for all believers, not just some. So we understand the context in which the disciples received the Great Commission. But now let's break down the Great Commission itself. You see, first, the Great Commission is one command. We'll see in verse 19, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That command is right there. Go and make disciples of all nations. The command here, it's not to go. I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, there's kind of a list here. It seems like there's actually like four or five commands here. But really there's just one command. And if we examine closely, we see that these other things that seem like command are actually just, just meant to serve this one command, which is to make disciples of all nations. And so that's, that's the command we see here. And friends, this is our purpose. This is the one task that Jesus asks us to do. Make disciples of all nations. You know, I, I think many of you have, there was, you know, like I think 10 years ago, there was a meme that was popular that you'd send to people when they'd forget to do something. And it said, you have one job. <laughs> you guys seen that before? We have one job. We have one job to make disciples of all nations. That's what we're called to do. You know, I, I, I often think of when we get to heaven, because this is, this is a reality, we're going to give a, an account before God of what we did with our lives. And we're going to have to give an account of, did we make disciples of all nations? What, what did we do? And I think, you know, there's so often so many barriers that keeps us from this. You know, it can be just shame. Maybe we feel like we're not following Jesus well enough ourselves. How can I teach this to others? It, it could be uh, just, you know, we're, I'm, I don't want to talk to people, you know. I don't want to engage with the loss. I don't want to engage with the brokenness. It can be laziness. It can be fear of man. So many things could, could be the, the barrier. And, and I wonder, when we get to heaven and we talk to people like the Apostle Paul, what that's going to look like when we're talking about the work that, that we got to be a part of on earth. Paul says, so, wait, so why didn't you do that? Oh, they were going to beat you, weren't they? No, they weren't going to beat me. Okay, so they were going to imprison you, right? That's what they were going to do. No, they weren't going to do that. Okay, so they were like going to kill you and maybe even your family. No. Okay, so what was, what, what was the issue then? It was awkward. <laughs> it, it was weird. What do, you, what do you think, you know, what do you think Paul would, would say to that? What do you think Christ would, would say to that? Christ who willingly went to the cross and gave up his life, died the most brutal death imaginable for us. And we're not willing to obey the command and cross cultures, cross, get out of our comfort zone to make disciples. It's the one task that we're given. And we, we've got to do it. It's our one job. It's, it's not an option for us. But if we are to make disciples, we need to understand exactly what that means. So, um, I think it's helpful if we would just look at how Jesus defines a disciple. Jesus, if you examine the Gospels, throughout the Gospels, He's sharing what a disciple is. So, I'll just, I'll just shoot off a few for you. Luke 14, verse uh, 26, says, Whoever does not bear his own cross 
and come after me cannot be my disciple. John 8, 31, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Okay? John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Okay? Then John 15, verse 8, it says, By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So a disciple is someone who takes up his cross, someone who follows after Christ with everything that they have. Nothing else is above Christ. They follow Him. He's their first priority. A disciple is someone that abides in Him. A disciple is someone that loves others. And a disciple is someone that eventually produces fruit. This is what a disciple is. And I would dare say that the picture we see of a disciple in Scripture is so different from what we think about being a disciple is in our modern Western church culture. If we think a disciple is just someone who goes to church once, twice, or three times a week and then goes home, we have something wrong. It doesn't say go and make more churchgoers. It says go and make disciples. We're not called to make churchgoers. We're called to make disciples. Disciples give their all to Christ. He's their first priority. And that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to cultivate in others. Giving everything to Christ. And though following Christ is a lot more than going to church, it's certainly not less than going to church. It's certainly not less than being a churchgoer. If, if you're wondering, like, where do, I, where do I start with making disciples? Church is a good place to start. Because disciples are made through the local church. Discipleship happens in the local church. And it's actually the first and foremost job of the church. We have to make disciples. And what I'm afraid is that sometimes the church forgets that. And that there are so many churches that if they were pressed, would say, yeah, we're really not making disciples. We're really just filling the building. We're filling the room. We have to make disciples, and we need to evaluate this in our lives and in the, the, the life of the church. We always need to take into account, are we doing what Jesus has asked us to do? But we don't just make disciples. We make disciples of all nations. The Greek here, the, the Greek word here is ta ethne, which refers to the conce concept of ethnic groups, of you know, various ethnic linguistic groups. We're supposed to make disciples out of all of these ethnic linguistic groups. All the ethne. So in the missions world, we often refer to these groups as, as people groups. So the International Mission Board, uh, which is the largest missions organization in the world, and my employer, um, <laughs> so just giving them credit, but... Um, but they define a people group as an ethno-linguistic group with a common self-identity that is shared by the various members. These are the groups that the Scripture commands us to reach. These are the groups that the Scripture commands us to go to, that Jesus commands us to. So now I'm going to shoot off a lot of numbers. So bear with me for a few minutes, and there's going to be a lot of numbers. So if you're not a math person, I'm very sorry. Um, but depending on how you define people groups... Currently, there are anywhere between 11,000 and 13,000 people groups in the world. And all need the gospel. And according to Revelation 7-9, where John the Apostle writes of a vast multitude of every tribe, nation, people, and language that's gathered around the throne worshiping God, all of these groups will be represented in heaven. Many of them are represented in our church. All will be represented in heaven. So now, amongst these people groups, we often talk about unreached people groups. So the definition for that is an unreached people group, or what we would call a UPG. That those are people groups that are less than two percent evangelical Christian. So less than two percent of those pop of the population of people groups. If less than 2% are evangelical Christians, then they would be considered 
an unreached people group. Uh, our brother Jacob is Polish. Polish people in the UK are one of the largest unreached people groups in the country. If you are a white British person, then you are a part of the largest unreached people group in this country. It's, if we really look at, at this, we would, we would understand the need. By these definitions, there are anywhere between 6,800 and 8,000 unreached people groups in the world today. So that leaves about 3,364,214,000 people unreached with the gospel. That's 42% of the world is unreached with the gospel. Our city is considered unreached with the gospel. Now, if we take it a step further, I'm giving, I know it's a lot of numbers, but we're going to keep going. We can also look at unreached and unengaged people groups. So this, we would say the acronym UUPG, unreached and unengaged people group. So they're still less than 2% evangelical, they're, they're unreached, but they're also unengaged, which means that there's currently no known church planning strategy to get the gospel to them. So this is, they don't have the gospel, no one's trying to get it to them. There is no active work towards getting the gospel to them. So today, there's around 3,000 unreached, unengaged people groups in the world. That's about 278 million people. Don't have the gospel, no one's even trying. These are people, every day they're dying and they're going to hell because... No one's told them about Jesus. Now, sometimes these are, are people in hard-to-reach places. You know, sometimes there are very significant barriers. They're unreached and unengaged for a reason. You know, there are people that would love to be able to get it to them, but for various reasons, you know, they're not able to. But there are also, I think, around 30 unreached, unengaged people groups in our city alone. Our brother and sister, Adrian and Michelle, they're a part of the Ghanaian Ashanti tribe. There's about 27,500 Ashanti in London. They're considered unreached and unengaged with the gospel. In a city that has so many church buildings, there are people groups that don't have the gospel. And there are people in our church that represent these groups, that have family members that are a part of these groups, that have friends that are a part of these groups. And this is who we're called to bring the gospel to. The, all the ethne, all the people groups. So I ask you, will you go to your friends? Will you go to your neighbors, to the people in your life that are un unreached with the gospel, perhaps even unengaged with the gospel, but they have Christians in their lives who if they would open their mouths, they could hear and they could believe and maybe they could be reached. So will you make disciples, church? Must be faithful to obey this one command. And it starts with you. Maybe you can't go to the nations, but God's brought the nations to our city. That vast multitude I was talking about, if you, if you just walk around London you see the vast multitude. If you look at this church, you see the tribes, the, the nations, the languages represented. It starts with us. So let's, let's start by going next door and making disciples of all nations that are in our city. We understand the Great Commission. It's one command to make disciples of all nations, but it's one command with two promises. In verse 18, it says, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The first promise is his authority. Jesus promises that he has authority in heaven and on earth. He's over it all. Friends, this is good news. This is fantastic news. If he's the one with authority and power then we can trust that the work will be done. We can, we can go and make disciples with assurance 
that Jesus will build his church. Jesus will see that vast multitude come to faith. We can trust one day that that will happen because Jesus has authority. Now, does this mean we don't have to do anything? Absolutely not. It means that we can do anything He commands us, trusting that He will accomplish His will. And it means that we don't have to worry about what happens to us. We don't have to worry about the results, about the outcome. We don't have to worry about any of these things because He has authority. All we have to do is be faithful. All we have to do is try. All we have to do is walk in His Spirit open our mouths and seek to make disciples and we can trust him with the outcome. He gives us the great commission under the precept of his authority. He didn't say go and make disciples, but also remember I have authority. He said, no, I have authority. Everything on heaven and earth is mine. Now go and make disciples. His authority comes first. He's just asking us to join in. This is his mission. It's his kingdom. It's his vision. And he just wants to use us to accomplish that purpose. He has a plan. He has a purpose. We just have to decide whether we will obey. Whether we'll obey Christ and we'll choose to be a part of it. Now the the latter half of verse 20 says, And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The first promise is is His authority, and the second promise is His presence. Jesus has promised that He will always be with us. He will never leave us. No matter how hard it gets, or how painful it is, the pain and suffering we experience, going and trying to make disciples, we can do that knowing He's with us. When He sends us out to advance His kingdom, He's not sending us out alone. He is with us. In Luke chapter 10, verse verse 3, Jesus tells His disciples that He's sending them out like lambs amongst wolves. But He's not sending them out without their shepherd. We have the shepherd. He's with us to the very end. And one day He will return and He will judge the earth. He will reap the harvest of His kingdom. But until that day, He's with us. And He's going before us. This point's really exemplified in Acts 18 when Paul is sharing the gospel to the people of Corinth. And in verses 9 and 10 of... What is going on? My iPad just... I have no idea what's happening. That's so weird. There we go. Sorry. Acts 18, verses 9 through 10 says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. God was always with Paul leading and guiding him as he fulfilled the Great Commission, and he is always with us. We can rest in that this morning. He has many that are his people in this, in this city, and he is with us. So the Great Commission, it's one command to make disciples of all nations. It's two promises of his authority and his presence, but it's also three steps. So we'll read verses in uh, the first half of verse 19. Go therefore, and make dis- Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So the first step in actually doing the Great Commission is to go. We have to go to people. This takes action. It takes work on our part. We have to leave our comfort zone. And we have to go to where non-believers are. This also means that we have to leave the four walls of the church. If everything that that we're doing is in the church, we're going to miss out on a lot of people. Because there are people 
who will never step foot in a church, period. One survey says that that's 60% of people. That they, just, they won't. They just won't go to a church. For whatever reason, they just won't do that. So if all the outreach we do is inside the church, then we're, we're, we're perhaps alienating 60% of people. We have to go to them. I can't tell you how often I, might, I meet people, just the word church, they say, no thanks, not interested. We really see that every, every Christmas we put on a carol service. And the years that we have it in the church building versus just right outside on the road, it's significant. Because there are people that won't come to this building. They won't come. They just won't. But if we just did something out there, they, they would. So we have to go and meet the world where they're at. We have to go to them and meet their need for the gospel. Now, we have to do this as a church, but we also need to do this as individuals. If we're never going, then, then that's an issue. Friends, if your life is only spent with believers, if the, the only people you ever hang out with or spend time with are believers, that's a problem. We're called to go to the lost and bring the gospel to them. And just as we're called to go next door, we're also called to go to the nations. Every people group needs to hear about the good news of Jesus. So that sometimes means we need to get on a plane and we need to go somewhere else to people who don't have the gospel or don't have the same access and share with them. Some, it can be across the street. We have to go there. Also, we have to go to other countries and other nations to people that need to hear it. And if every people group is called, or if every people group does need to hear about the good news of Jesus, that also means that some of us are called to go and bring the gospel to them in a long-term capacity. If this is a healthy church, and I believe it is, if this is a healthy church, that means there are several sitting here this morning that are called to devote their lives to missionary service. If we look at the actual number of Christians in the world versus the number of missionaries serving in a cross-cultural context, only about like 0.02% of Christians are serving as missionaries in a cross-cultural context. And I just don't believe that God has only called 0.02% of His people to bring the gospel to the nations. I don't believe that. I believe there are some sitting in here this morning that are called to go to the nations and devote their lives to that. Is, it, is that you? Seek the Lord. Evaluate that. And then let's take steps towards that. So the first step is to go. The second step is to baptize. Right? In verse, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we go and we evangelize the lost. And then as people hear the gospel and they repent of their sins and they trust in Christ, we baptize them. We're called to be baptized. We just got to see two baptisms, was it last week or the week before? Last week, thank you. It's so beautiful to get to celebrate that and to get to fulfill the Great Commission in seeing people publicly profess that faith in, in baptism. To give a quick overview on what exactly baptism is, baptism is a public profession of faith in Christ where someone is immersed in water and this symbolizes that as Christians, we're buried with Christ and raised with Him to walk in the newness of life. And from what I see in Scripture, I see that baptism is meant to be this, the very first step of obedience for Christians. The very first step of obedience is publicly professing that faith. It's the very first step of discipleship. So as we go and we proclaim the gospel... And we see people come to faith, which if we are proclaiming the gospel, we can trust we will see people come to faith. We need to baptize them. 
And friends, it's astounding to me how many churches in, in our Western culture I've seen treat baptism so nonchalantly. So many churches have classes that take months and months before someone can be baptized. Right? All these hoops to jump through for, for people to, to just take the step of publicly professing their faith. Guys, I, I kind of believe that delayed obedience is disobedience. If we're called to be baptized, we should make every effort to be baptized. It's not something that we just get to eventually. It's not something that we get around to in discipleship. It's the first step of discipleship. So, so often people say, we've got to wait and just we've got to make sure that we're, gonna, we're seeing fruit in their lives before we can baptize. But isn't baptism in itself fruit? Isn't making that public profession of faith, isn't that fruit in itself? We shouldn't be nonchalant about baptizing people. We should have urgency in that. And we should teach that this is something to have urgency about, to publicly profess that faith. When we make disciples, we're called to baptize them. And our job is to be faithful to do that. I'm not saying we should be unwise in how we baptize people. I'm not saying that anyone who just says, all right, I'm following Jesus now. I'm not saying we shouldn't counsel and have conversations and and, and uh, try to, to do it well. I'm not saying it should, we should just baptize flippantly. You know, anyone who just comes to the front on a Sunday, just dunk them. I'm, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we shouldn't put unnecessary barriers in baptizing people. We shouldn't keep people from, being a, from, from taking that step urgently. You know, we shouldn't delay it unnecessarily. The final step we see in making disciples, in verse 20, it says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. This last step is that we teach to obey. We teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded them. Now this is really broad. This is probably the most broad step in fulfilling the Great Commission. And on this side of heaven, I believe it's never ending. We're constantly teaching each other. We're constantly growing and learning how to obey all that Christ has commanded. So this means a few things. It means that we teach His Word. Right? We have to teach His Word because what He's commanded us, all that He's taught, we have it right here. We have everything that we need. Nothing more, nothing less. It's all right here in His Word. So we have to teach His Word. All disciples are called in Scripture to obey God fully. And so we also must be committed to, to teaching others individually, to have discipleship relationships. So we have to teach what God has commanded, and then we have to teach how do we obey it. So what, what has God told us? Then what practically do we need to do to obey? What practically do we need to do to see life change in our lives, to submit to His Word? This is done so many ways. I, I think through fellowship, through preaching and teaching, or just simply studying the Word one-on-one -on -one with others. Having those one-to-one -one discipleship relationships or discipleship relationships that happen in the context of, of small groups. I often like to just take people to coffee. And we just look at the Bible together. And we, ask, we really just ask three simple questions. What does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about man? And then what are we going to do about it? How do we need to obey Christ? What practically does that look like in our lives? Just taking people out to coffee and, and doing that. Um, it's a simple way that we can just start making disciples. Who's someone in your life that, that you know who could really benefit from that. That you could just say, hey, let's, let's meet once a week and I'll buy you coffee and we'll, we'll just look at the Word together and spur each other on to obey it. So we're called to teach disciples to obey all that God has commanded. But here's another thing to note. If we're called to teach God, or excuse me, if we're called to teach disciples to obey all that God has commanded us, that includes this command. 
That includes this command to make disciples of all nations. So as we're discipling others, we're discipling them to make more disciples. We don't graduate from discipleship. We have to make more disciples. should never just end. Alright, I've discipled someone. I've fulfilled the Great Commission. No. They've got to make more disciples. And so do you. Like I said earlier, we're not called to just make churchgoers. We're called to make disciples. Disciples should always be making more disciples. This is how the kingdom of God will expand and reach the world. When disciples today commit to making more disciples. And I, I, I grieve sometimes because, especially coming from the States and seeing church culture in the States, this is not a priority. We have to ask ourselves in our lives, is this a priority? Making disciples who make disciples. Tim Bower, is, uh, he's the chair at the Billy Graham School of Evangelism at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in, in Louisville, Kentucky. And he shares this story. So, imagine there's, there's three people, and this, this first person, they lead one first person to faith every week. That'd be awesome, right, if we were leading one person to faith every week. And so every week, you know, they're coming to church, and they've got another person now in their car that they're bringing to church. So every week, they're leading one, one person to faith. Now, there's a second person. They, they, see, they see this person, they're like, I can, I can do better than that. Now they're leading someone to faith every single day. Could you imagine how awesome that would be if, if we saw people come to faith every single day and, you know, very, I guess, very gifted evangelists, you know, whatever. But uh, this person's seen someone come to faith every day. So every week, they've got seven more people that they're bringing along to church. But then this third person, he leads one person to faith and then disciples them for six months. And then that pattern is continued of now every person that comes to faith uh, from this one guy, so every six months he's just seeing this one person come to faith, but then that person starts to also make disciples. Every six months they lead one person to faith, and then they disciple them for six months. So you guys following? Let's just imagine that that pattern continues. So... After six months, so just that first six months, the first person saw 26 new believers. So praise God for that. If we saw 26 new believers in six months, we would rejoice and give God glory. The second person saw 183 new believers in six months, every single day leading someone to faith. But the third person only saw the one. Only saw the one person come to faith. Now if we look after 16 years. So we looked at six months. Now after 16 years, the first person would have seen 832 people come to faith. The second person would have seen 5,840 people come to faith. These amazing things. You know, if that's what happens in the ministry of one person in 16 years, man, praise God. But the third person saw 4,294,967,296 new believers. If you think my math is wrong, if you think there's something wrong with the numbers, there's not. What's wrong is that the church so often follows a pattern of addition rather than multiplication. If we want to see... The gospel proclaimed to the ends of the earth. We have to make disciples who make disciples. If the church would commit to making disciples, who then make more disciples, who then make more disciples, we would see the world reached in one generation. It would take one generation to reach the entire world. 4.2 billion people would hear the gospel if that pattern was followed, would be saved. That's more people than there are lost people in the world today. The world could be reached if we would commit to this. And this is biblical. Because Paul models this for Timothy in his second letter to him. 2 Timothy 
chapter 2, verse 2 says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We see four generations of Christians there. We see Paul. We see Timothy. We see faithful men. And we see others. It was never meant to end with us. We were never meant to just come, listen to a sermon, go to church, do these activities, and go home. We were meant to make disciples who then make disciples. This is what the church needs. If we teach to obey all that Jesus has commanded, the kingdom of God explodes more rapidly than we could ever imagine because God's doing it and he's glorified. So church, will you be the ones to commit to being faithful to make disciples, to obey the Great Commission? Will you do it? As we close, I want to just offer a couple challenges here. For, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, I want to ask you to remember the time that you heard the gospel and were saved. Someone had to tell you. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad they told you? Think about when you were baptized. You declared to the world that you were a follower of Jesus. Think about what an amazing and joyous day that was. Somebody had to baptize you. You couldn't do it yourself. Aren't you glad someone baptized you? Church, aren't you glad that someone shared with you and someone baptized you? Think about all the times someone taught you about the Lord and helped you learn how to obey Him. Think about how the people that walked alongside you, how that led to life change. How that led to holiness. Somebody had to teach you. Where would you be today if someone didn't do that? Where would you be today if someone didn't teach you? I have no idea where I would be, and I don't want to know. Someone had to do it. So I want to challenge you this morning to take a stand for Christ and to do that for others. Maybe there's someone you know this week, maybe a family member or a friend or a coworker that hasn't heard the gospel from you. And you need to share it with them. Maybe there's someone that you know who's struggling. And you just need to start studying the Word with them. Maybe there's someone that you need to teach how to make disciples. Maybe you need to learn how to make disciples. Let's take a stand and do that. And that's what the church is for, so that we can learn how to do these things and go forth. I encourage you, don't leave this morning with any of those things. If, 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 if there's something that resonates with you that this week you need to do, don't leave the, here this morning without making a plan of how you're going to commit to doing something about what you've heard in God's Word today. Now, for those of you that have not trusted in Christ as your Savior, I know this seems like a lot. This is... God's mission for His people. And I, and I know many that don't trust in Christ don't like the idea of evangelism or don't like hearing about that. And maybe this, this message wasn't super helpful. But I just want to ask you to think about one thing. Why? Why is there a Great Commission? Why would Jesus command His people to go and make disciples of all nations? Why would he command his people to go and tell the world about him? It's not just because he wants more people. It's not just because he wants to have control. It's not about money. It's not about religiosity. It's because he loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus, and He's God in the flesh, and He sent Him into this broken and evil world that's full of sinners like me and like you who are all deserving of judgment. And Jesus loves you so much that He lived a perfect life 
And He laid down His life on a cross for you and for me as the forgiveness for sin. And He loves you so much that He didn't stay dead. And that He rose from the dead on the third day showing that He is the living God. And He does have power over sin and death. And that in Him is life and life abundantly. All we have to do is repent of our sin and trust in Christ. Make Him the Lord of our lives. And He's promised to cancel our sin and cancel our judgment forever. That's good news. This is the gospel. That's where it literally means good news. And that's why He gave the Great Commission. Because how will you believe what you've not heard? And how will you hear if someone isn't sent to tell you? That's why He gave the Great Commission. Because He knows you. He knows your need for a Savior. Savior, And He loves you enough to send someone to tell you about it. We live in a culture where there's a lot more gospel access than other parts of the world. We, if we want to hear the gospel, we, we can. But there are people, even in our city, that don't know the gospel. That don't know who Jesus is or what he's done for us. Friends, God loves us so much that he has sent his people to tell us about this. If you've never made a decision to follow Jesus before and you would like to, I would like to invite you to do that this morning. All you have to do is just, we just express that decision to the Lord. There's no magic words. There's no magic prayer. It's just in our heart acknowledging that Jesus is Lord, believing that He is who He says He is, that He is God, and He was raised from the dead, and committing to making Him the Lord of your lives. And we just express that to God in prayer. And if you would like to do that this morning, Please don't leave this morning without talking to someone. You can start with anyone that you've seen up front. Any of us would love to talk to you about what it looks like to follow Jesus. I want to encourage you to do that today if you've never made that decision. But friends, as we close, God's given us a task. So let's go, therefore, and make disciples. And we are promised we will see his kingdom grow for his glory and his glory alone. So let's commit to doing that, church. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for giving us a great commission. We thank you that you've invited us to be a part of your mission and a part of your kingdom, that you've not left us alone, but you've given us a purpose. You've given us a task by your strength, by your power, would you help us to fulfill that task, knowing that it is through you and you alone that the gospel goes forth. Would we be challenged and would we go forth and obey you in this way? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.